Well, as Colin mentioned last week, we are alternating through the month of December. We're going back and forth between preachers, and we're going back and forth to follow Luke's alternation between John the Baptist and Jesus. Luke's first chapter in his gospel is fairly long, and we are taking a middle portion of the chapter this morning. So this morning's passage will be very familiar, especially if you have been using the long journey over the last couple of weeks in your times of family worship. In fact, you may have sung the song that will make up the bulk of our passage. We sang it this morning together. Young Christians, I want you to listen for the song that's sung in our passage. I want you to think about who is singing about redemption this morning. And then I want you to listen very carefully as I describe what it would mean if you and I sang songs of our redemption. This is the good news of God's redemption sung to us from Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1 verses 39 through 55. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary answered and said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Heavenly Father, you have given us this odd and wonderful story of a surprising announcement and a surprising arrival. And Lord, it pains us to admit, but we so often treat your gospel like a set of facts. We receive it and we catalog it. We learn eloquent ways to discuss it, and in discussing it, can very easily slip away from resting on it and living in it and celebrating it and enjoying it. But the gospel of your Son is the good news of the eternal Word made flesh for us, and it is so much more than we could ever grasp. It is more than just information for us to file away. Jesus, we cannot even begin to understand the mystery of your incarnation. But your good news for us is that we don't have to understand it. You give it to us to trust and to lean on 
and to fall into and to find our rest with the faith and the hope that you provide by your Spirit. And so we ask that again you would feed your sheep. We ask that you would feed us from your word and surprise us again this morning with your gospel. Let us feel the joy and freedom again that come from watching you remove our burdens from us. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I trust that all of you have settled into your Christmas schedule. Your children probably no longer recognize you because you have babysitters stacked up four nights a week. This week alone, you've had your home group and your school and your neighborhood and your friends from college and your Scrabble Club Christmas parties. And then when you're not at a party, you're cooking or you're updating your address list and stuffing envelopes with Christmas cards for friends you haven't seen in years. And you're converting public space in your house to accommodate family members that you have never met who will come stay with you. You've spent days driving around looking for those poinsettia napkins that will match your tablecloth for Christmas Eve. And you've been shopping for the most obscure toy that your oldest child can imagine. Which means for us, you've been looking for a, Disney Robin, a Disney's Robin Hood action figure that, as it turns out, was produced by some British company in the late 70s and hasn't been made since. But if you sift all the way through eBay's list of basement-dwelling toy collectors, you can find one and have it shipped to you for a reasonable fee. There's no snow in Dallas, but all of these things let us know that it's December. And at the end of weeks like this, we stumble into church for more of our holiday routine. We dust off words like hark and tidings, and we sing about angels and shepherds, and about gathering around something or other. And then we all sit down for the first time in a week, and we expect to hear sweet sermons about little eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus and his little golden fleecy diapers with his balled-up fist, doesn't even hardly know a word yet. And with everything quiet and serene, we think something poignant at the end of the sermon, and then we head home for more of the grind. The truth of Christmas for us generally is that we know it, and we're used to it, and that means it's easy for us to get bored by it. Not bored in the sense that you're tired of it, we love this time of year, but you're bored in the sense that it's predictable, you know exactly what to expect. In his sermon at Vespers this Wednesday, Colin referenced the familiar claymation classics that we watched that were made in 1964 and have never been changed. And we still love them, but none of us are surprised when that elf wants to be a dentist. And no one is shocked when Charlie Brown's Christmas tree is so pitiful and then gets decorated into majesty because we've seen it all before. Christmas is hectic, but it's very predictable. And so we look forward to our favorite parts, and then we brace ourselves for the rest. And we just kind of ride it out. All of this routine, 
And all of this expectation are not far off from Mary and Elizabeth's experience coming into our story. Along with the rest of Israel, they have been waiting for and expecting this. Throughout all of human history, ever since God's promise to Eve in the curse, when He told her to expect a Savior, we've been waiting. We've gotten these weird and cryptic glimpses of what it will look like for God's rescuer to come in and redeem His people. But we've just been waiting. Year after year after year, through kings and exiles and returns, and Roman imperialism, people have been expecting for this to happen at some point. It's enough of an expectation that when we get to Simeon a few chapters later, he's looking for it. It's enough of an expectation that from the outside looking in, people ask John if he might be the one. People are used to waiting for it, and they're used to being disappointed. But when this is announced, when it's finally here, it's not expected. There's nothing but surprise through the whole beginning of Luke's gospel. Zechariah is surprised by Gabriel's announcement, and he's surprised in, in, in disbelief. Mary is surprised at Gabriel's news, but she's surprised in faith. Elizabeth is surprised at Mary's arrival. And her surprise comes out in this kind of spontaneous prophecy. And then there's that awkward part about John's joyful leap. And that's our own surprise at Elizabeth's statement about this unborn worshiper already rejoicing in utero. And then we come to Mary's beautiful and surprising and very quirky song. Now I can try and play it up for you, but no matter how extraordinary any of this is, you expected all of it. This morning, no one was surprised by anything that I read because we've read the story before. In fact, the more we read this story, the more normal it seems. And the truth is, really, the more and more that we read this story, the weirder and stranger it should get for us. Have you ever really stopped to imagine this scene? When we read through it, what do you picture? I feel like we normally picture a little hymn sing around Elizabeth's piano. She's been waiting for Mary, and when Mary shows up, she hands out music, and Mary brings music of her own, and they sing hymns together. And they hold hands and they drink cider. And they watch the news and they go to bed. But it reads a little more like a musical that's written by Stanley Kubrick. Mary is running away. She's a virgin visited by an angel. Told that she is carrying the Lord's Messiah. So she runs off into the hill country to see her elderly cousin. And her cousin greets her with this inspired declaration. And then Mary answers her, of all things, by just breaking into song. Kind of like something out of The Sound of Music. 
but she doesn't start dancing around a gazebo, and she's not singing, I am 16 going on 17. Mary sings a power ballad. It starts off slow with what the Lord has done with, done with her and for her. It kind of moves through this bridge about the Lord's goodness and His mercy. And then at verse 51, she cranks the volume up to 11 and she kicks over her amp. This is when she starts in with the heavy piece of the song, talking about the Lord destroying the army of His enemies and bankrupting the wealthy and turning history upside down. In the first half, she sings about mercy, but she does it in the ways that we expect. She does it with rejoicing. And she talks about blessing. And she discusses that God cares for the humble. The second half of Mary's psalm is about mercy too. And when we get there, we're, if we're not careful, we'll miss it. It becomes militaristic. I have told you several stories about the dumb stuff I did as a kid. And because I grew up in this area, several of you have the privilege, like Will Howard, of imagining my stupidity right behind your own house. When I was a kid, I used to go to the Ridgewood Rec Center with my friends. And when I was just a little bit older than Walker, our oldest, one of my favorite things to do, one of our favorite games, was to take turns pushing each other off of that long, thin retaining wall that runs down the side and then around the back. The wall kind of runs out across this hill, if you haven't seen it, so that as you go farther and farther out away from the parking lot, it gets steeper and taller. And so the way it would work is you would stand next to each other and kind of shuffle out to the left, and then you would push off the person to your right. And they would land and get up and run around to the back and come around to your left, and they would push you off. So now it's your turn to try and land and get up and run around and jump up and push them down. And so the farther you go, the longer you play, the higher you are. And the wilder it gets and the funnier it is. But you start landing a little harder. And it starts getting a little more dangerous. And as parents, many of you can see this one coming. But when you're six or seven, you have no idea that pretty soon you have two options. Pretty soon your options are you can chicken out and call it off, or you can get very seriously hurt. One day we played this game with courage, and we went out much farther than we'd ever made it, until we were so far down that I pushed my friend off the wall, and he panicked and sprawled, and he landed on his arm and broke it. And so there was the loud pop, and there was him screaming and crying. And I did what all good six- and seven-year-old friends do, I freaked out, and I ran away. (laughs) And I didn't see Cody again until his arm was in a cast and a sling. Now, parents squirm a little bit when they picture kids playing carelessly. And they cringe at the thought of having that conversation with their friends about how their child abandoned the other one with a fractured limb. But my guess is you probably squirmed a little more this morning when you read about the Lord breaking people's arms. 
Because when he does it, it's not an accident. It's not a careless game that gets out of control. And he doesn't run away trying to avoid blame. When the Lord breaks someone's arm, he tells them in advance he's going to do it. And then he does it out in public. So many of you probably squirmed a little bit during our Lectio reading. It's not the kind of prophecy you were expecting at Christmas time. So far, Kara and I have not gotten any Christmas cards that included the Lord breaking Pharaoh's arms. But this is actually part of the imagery in Mary's song. She really ties together a couple of passages and a couple of uh, biblical ideas for us in her song in a couple of lines. In Ezekiel 30, like we read this morning, we have this picture of the Lord breaking his enemy's mighty arm and then crushing his weak arm and destroying his army and scattering them to shame them and declare the fact that he is indeed the Lord. And so that's what Mary gives us here. In the middle of her song, in the middle of her greeting for Elizabeth, this is the image she picks. Except that she also pulls in something else. In her song, it's the Lord's mighty arm. There it's more reminiscent of Psalm 136, where the Lord delivers his people through judgment by pronouncing and waging judgment on his enemies with his strong and outstretched arm. And when Mary sings this, it's not a historical stanza for her. Don't be confused as we read through or as we sing the song together by all of the past tense verbs that run through it. Mary is not necessarily talking about what the Lord has done way in the distant past. It's not a history lesson. Her song is about what the Lord is doing for His people now. She starts off with the past tense talking about what He has done by filling her womb with His Savior. And then that never changes through the rest of the song. She is singing about all the Lord has and is accomplishing through the Incarnation. Everything that the Messiah is and will be for those who belong to Him. Everything that He is and will be for us. This unborn Savior is the strong arm that breaks all of the strong arms of the Lord's enemies. And it's in this arm-breaking judgment that he brings his salvation to his people. Now her song is beautiful and it's full of the gospel. It has everything to do with the incarnation, but it has very little to do with the nativity. Her picture of the Savior is nothing like Ricky Bobby's tiny infant Christmas Jesus. But he is everything like John's description in Revelation 19. He is the kind of Savior who marches in wearing a robe dipped in blood, leading his army dressed in fine linen, carrying a rod of iron, and with a tattoo that runs the length of his thigh that reads, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
from God the Son, the eternal word of the Father becomes flesh. He sends his enemies off to chase their tails. He destroys their armies and scatters them in confusion. And then he turns history and all social order upside down. At the end of her song, she talks about the way the Lord humiliates power players, the way he promotes the oppressed. He ruins the well-off and he serves the starving at his banquet. And so her song is not necessarily sweet, but it is beautiful. This is the bracing promise that Yahweh made to Abraham and all of his believing children. It is this kind of shocking mercy that we need. This is the kind of jolt we need to shake us awake while we sleepwalk through another Christmas. Now, thanks to Google and Amazon, my kids will probably never know what this is like. But every late November and early December, my sister and I used to collect every catalog we could find and study them to figure out what we wanted for Christmas. It didn't matter what the catalog was. It didn't have to be a toy catalog. It could be Sears. It could be Montgomery Ward. It could be tools. It could be clothing. You had to research. Christmas only comes around once a year, and you don't want to screw this up. You have to choose wisely. You have to investigate, and you have to chart, and you have to figure out what's best. So we'd earmark pages, and we'd circle product numbers, and then we left them out on the dining room table for days, spread out and opened significant pages so we could use them for quick reference the way grad students do in a library. And for whatever reason, it was either because I was a weird kid or because there were just too many options to choose from, but I would come up with the strangest list of things that I suddenly wanted more than life itself. What eight-year-old puts down on a list that he needs a guitar, a wooden entertainment center, and an electric motor? (laughs) But I had to have them. And whatever the reasoning, I never got the random list of things I asked for. I never got all the random and useless stuff that seemed so perfect on the page. That's probably for the best. I didn't have a TV or stereo. I had no use for an entertainment center. I don't know that I ever figured out what I would have actually done had I gotten it. I don't know why I wanted it, but I never needed it, and my parents knew that. I don't know if you've made your Christmas list for the year. I don't know what you want, but I know what you need. You need exactly what I need. You need the surprising and admittedly very odd joy of a Savior who isn't cute. What I need for Christmas is to have my enemy's arms broken. I need a Savior who will come in and break sin and death. 
I need him to make my sin utterly weak and pitiful. And then I need him to take away my pity for it and my joy in it. And that's exactly what Jesus is giving us in his incarnation. God the Son becoming man does exactly this for us and nothing less. Now it would seem odd to us if people interrupted conversations all the time to burst into song the way Mary did here. That's part of what makes musicals laughable at times. But that's the right response. The incarnation is God's interrupting song of redemption. It interrupts history and it interrupts us. And our only answer to it has to be sung but we don't sing it in the key of C and we don't sing it to 4-4 four, four time. Your redemption song is sung out loud when you trust Jesus to help you refuse your sin. Even though it's easy and comfortable and familiar. And you belt out the song of your redemption when you trust the Spirit to fight for fruit in you even when it's painful and awkward. And there will be times that you sing off key. And there will be times that you forget the words. But your redemption song will always have those two verses. Defiance against the Lord's enemies and the relief and joy of submission to Jesus. Sing both of these verses loudly when your children hate or disappoint you. Sing them through tears when you struggle to forgive the friends and parents and spouse that wounds you over and over so easily. And ask Jesus to sing loudly over your mumbling words to help you remember both verses when you are blind to your own sin. Skeptics, we are glad for you to be with us this morning and through the month as we consider and celebrate the incarnation. That Jesus is fully God and that he became fully man for us. I want to let you know that you have something that most of us don't. Christmas may have a routine for you, but you don't need my 30-minute sermon to remind you that the incarnation is strange. You know that without anyone telling you. And so here are the questions that kind of strangeness asks. Can you see the strange and overwhelming need that demands such an odd solution? And if you can see that strange need, will you trust and rest on Jesus and his incarnation? the Lord's strange but beautiful interruption. A couple of weeks ago, we came to eat and drink at communion. And it tasted better for me than it has tasted in a long time. I've realized over the last few months how bored with the gospel I have become. 
And this is one of those things that you don't like to hear, and it's one of those things that I hate to admit. But over the last couple of months, the gospel has just felt like a job. It is something that I believe and proclaim, mostly because I'm expected and paid to. It's become more like this account that I've been given to manage, and so I meet with and present quarterly performance reports to clients and investors. But it's had no music in it. It's more than just frustrating. It's actually, crush, it's actually crushing to suddenly realize that you have a strictly professional relationship with Jesus and his good news. There's no joy if preaching and prayer are just paperwork. When I realized that I didn't hit a wall or slump into any kind of depression this time around, but there was this sinking feeling and suddenly feeling that kind of hunger pang. And there was a joy on the backside of it, as there always is and as there should be. And this is what I remembered coming to the table a couple of weeks ago. This is the way the Lord crushed me with his shocking and interrupting good news. He reminded me that he doesn't feed the full. He fills the hungry. I had spent months trying to think of creative ways to package it and novel ways to say it. But the beauty of the gospel and its music lie in its simplicity. The good news that I need to preach is the good news that I need. And the good news that I need is the good news that Jesus gives me in his incarnation. Like Rich said a little bit ago, it is Jesus giving all of himself to me. So this Christmas, in the middle of all the busyness and in the middle of your boredom and the predictability of Christmas, listen for the surprising music of the Incarnation and never stop singing the song of your redemption. Amen. Lord Jesus, your Incarnation is our surprising and much-needed interruption. You are the fleshy music of the Father's redemption song. And so we ask that you would fill our hearts and our lives with your joyful music. We walk lazily through much of life and we stumble along joylessly, making ourselves busy with Christmas. But you jar and jolt us out of all of this with your incarnation with your life lived full for us. So we ask that you would set our lives to the music of your redemption. Break the arms of our sin and continue your goodness to us from generation to generation. Continue in your kindness to us and to our children and to our grandchildren all of us unworthy and dead in ourselves, but made alive by your Spirit, leaping for joy at your presence as you draw near to us. Call us out of our apathy and boredom and return us to the full shouts and celebration of your gospel. 
We ask that you would do all of these things for us because our hearts are weak. We cannot do these things on our own. We need you, our strong Savior, to do them for us. And so we ask all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.